You're listening to a Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern, your host, and I've got Dr. Tony Salas, CEO and co-founder of Shared X, an impact farming company on the show. And uh, welcome to the program, Dr. Tony. Thank you so much for inviting me, Matt. Well, it's great to have you. So, so tell us a little bit about uh, your story as to what what brought you to this world of uh, impact farming and and how how'd you get here? Well, I, actually, I, I started, I'm a biologist by training, and then I did my master's and my PhDs in the U.S. So, I mean, that's how I got involved a little bit more in learning how, uh, how, how, the, how the businesses in the U.S. work. And uh, that led me to be more creative in the things that I was doing at that time. I was a consultant in, the, in ag business, and I traveled the world doing that. So I was a consultant for large companies, small companies poor guys, rich guys, whatever. So uh, I was involved in over 30 countries, probably 500 different ag projects all over. And uh, after that, I had the sense that, I mean, I had a lot of knowledge, but I didn't achieve a lot, I mean, by myself. So uh, I went uh, to try the, the American way. And uh, I, I, I talked to a to a to a to actually a former client I had in 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 Silicon Valley, Kleiner Perkins, and uh, well, we decided to to launch a company together, with three founders, John Deniston, myself, and Gisela Caminati, and we decided to go ahead and, and and start doing something in the impact investing world, and that is a sector that has been growing tremendously over the last years, and I think it's going to be still growing over the next decades. So it's more, I mean, focus on impact in the social way and environmental way. And uh, those are the two things that, I mean, need to be stressed and need to be bound together when you think about agriculture or the new way of farming. And that's what I tried to do in the last seven years. So we found a shared X in 2015. And uh, well, since then, it has been uh, a fantastic journey. Well, tell us a little bit uh, more about impact investing. Uh, you know, some of, I've read a bit about it, but uh, I think the audience probably would like to hear a little bit more about what does that mean? Yeah, well, uh, people talk a lot about ESG. You probably have heard about ESG, you know, so that's environmental and social and governance. And everybody wants to have his ESG division and everybody brags about what they do in ESG and so on. So uh, I think uh, impact investing is, is inherently Im- implements ESG, the principles. But I mean, ESG is not inherently impactful. So what I'm saying is that, I mean, ESG is just saying, well, you know, I have, uh, I give equal opportunities to women or I do this, I do that. And that's how I create my governance. No, I recycle, blah, blah. But impact investing is, is really more deep, like it's in the DNA of the company. And what it needs to do is it needs to be the mindfulness of the company. So it needs to be at the heart of the company. Every time the company takes a, takes a breath, it needs to think about how can I impact more with the things I'm doing. So that's really the difference between ESG and impact. In ESG, actually, you can outsource. You can carry it out. You can have a division doing that. Every All the companies can do that. But impact investing is something at the core of the company. It's how the company got started. And uh, trying to talk more in the real world, just imagine a mining company. So they want to do good to the 
environment that they are around. So I say, okay, well, I mean, I have a lot of farmers around. Why don't give away uh, good genetics in cows? So, I mean, and there's a gold mining company. So it's not inherited to, to their business, the cow business. You know what I'm saying? Right. But they want to be good. So I want to be okay with the neighbors. So they give away cows. Uh, they make a lot of money. So they give away whatever, 500 cows one year. But next year, they don't make so much money. So they give away only 50 cows. Or depending on how they feel, they could get more cows, whatever they reported. They have some KPIs. And, and that's the way they deal with ESG which is a different thing of impact investing. Impact investing is them themselves being cowboys, them themselves being cow uh, 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 investors, you know? And then they have that interaction with other, I mean, cattle growers and, and, and guys that are in that particular business. In, in, in the best day, if they do better, then the smallholder cattle growers will also do better. So that exchange makes it more important because it's aligned. It's perfectly aligned. The benefits are aligned and the risks are also aligned. So the risk of the farmer are also the risk of this larger company. And that's what impact investing is. So what we want to do is we don't only want to go uh, and, and tell the smallholder farmer what they should do is, I mean, we are also farmers. And we want to share our knowledge with them and we want to sell the products together. So I think that is what creates impact because you are aligned in the same purpose. So how does your business work? Are you designed to make money for uh, your shareholders or are you designed as a non-for-profit, a not-for-profit uh, corporation? I think in, in order everything to be sustainable, it needs to be a business. So the idea of making something sustainable and just being an NGO and uh, bringing in money from foundations from for whatever, I mean, that has a limit. So there's not going to be enough money given away for just doing good. So you need to create a business around it in order to make it sustainable. And that's what we have done. So we are a for-profit company. And uh, I think uh, that's, that's how uh, we have been dealing with, I mean, uh, with with the business all around. So we started uh, trying to build larger farms where we are sustainable and self-sufficient with our profits. And uh, what we have seen is that the big problem in smallholder farming in the rural areas, in poor countries and even in the States, is that, I mean, a lot of farmers, they don't have access to markets and they don't have access to technologies. So they are consequently poor because of the lack of access. So it's not a money thing, it's an access thing. So if we can actually construct a farm that provides the access, the platform for them to be efficient in their commercial uh, engagements or the technology that they are adopting, that is something that's value for them. So we establish a large uh, farm and then we share our technology and our market access together with them. And then we sell everything together. We charge them for doing that because, again, it needs to be a business, but everybody benefits from that. So it's an aligned business where we're not actually buying product from a small horror farmer and just reselling it because otherwise that's a perverse incentive. I will be incentivized to buy it at a cheaper price and sell it high, you know, because that's my profit. Here, I have my own farm. So if the farmer wants to participate in this, great. If he doesn't, that, that means that he has another option that's better than what I'm offering. So that's great. So we just are creating this platform of access because we think poverty is entangled as a consequence of not having that access. Well, I, I totally agree with the concept that uh, 
building for-profit businesses have the potential for greater impact because then it is in a, a sense sustainable as you said meaning that as a business model it can go forward without the uh, kindness of donors i mean there certainly is a place for donors to be involved in certain projects that maybe are too risky or first of their kind but if you've got something that's a uh, a business like agriculture uh, that's been a business since the beginning of uh, humanity uh, became, you know, civilization. So it's a business that should be potentially profitable. We all pay for food. Uh, there's a potential for profit there. So tell us a little bit more about, you know, exactly what the shared X uh, model is, where you guys are located, where in the world uh, you have farms or offices and uh, what's your growth been like? Well, I, I would just start by stating that, I mean, a lot has been said about innovation. You know, everybody wants to be an innovator. And you go to Silicon Valley, I mean, they create a lot of digital things and they, they are in the ag tech business today. And they think that they could tell the farmer how they should grow the food. <laughs> and that's something, I mean, that's not sometimes real. Okay. Because, I mean, the, the real world in the rural areas is a little more complex than the one that you imagine sitting in Sand Hill Roads. So uh, what I would say is that, I mean, we need to innovate in the model. I mean, our schools, they are built up for innovating in engineering, you know, operations, reduce the costs, economics. I mean, just be more efficient. Just have machinery to do that. And nobody has thought about innovating in the model of impact. How can you create more impact? Is there a model for that? And that's what impact farming is. So impact farming is a business model that says, okay, everybody can own a farm, but if we can share stuff with small world farmers, environmental uh, uh, technologies, environmental safe technologies, regenerative agriculture uh, technologies, and we can share then our access to market, then we can build something together that has a long lasting effect. That's what impact farming is. And that's what ShareDex does in different crops in different parts of the world. Well, I certainly uh, think that uh, having a farming industry or farming, uh, uh, you know, having our farmers be doing things that are environmentally friendly is is vital to uh, to our future. And unfortunately, big ag has gotten in, and there are just way too many fertilizers, and you see the the impact of that downstream is polluting our rivers, lakes, aquifers, oceans here in California. Uh, the pollution runoff from from farming killed a lot of the kelp forest off the coast of California. So it's something that's real and has a, has a direct impact on everybody who lives in California. You don't think of it naturally that uh, farmers miles away from the coast could destroy the kelp forest, but that's what happened. So, uh, We'll be right back. You're listening to A Climate Change. I've got Dr. Tony Salas on the program, CEO and co-founder of SharedX, an impact farming company, and we'll be right back. You're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Matter, your host, and I've got uh, Dr. Tony Salas on the program. Uh, Dr. Tony, uh, tell us a little bit about regenerative agriculture and and how that can make a difference 
in our farming and make it uh, more environmentally friendly? Well, I mean, what you just said is is, is very important. Also, what's in there for the farmers to make that transition from being a conventional agricultural farmer to go into do regenerative agricultural practices? So, uh, first of all, just I mean, as, as as the term says, the concept of regenerative agriculture is is based on uh, soil health. So we have uh, we have always thought, I mean, that the plants just need a lot of fertilizers and the soil is just there so the plant doesn't fall off. So even you can drip irrigate everything with hoses and water, you can dissolve the nutrients in the water and that's what you need. So, but now we understand that the soil is very, very important and we are going back to our ideas about the soil, the microbes in the soil, the way they actually are miners of those uh, uh, fertilizers to make them more available to the plant that they create those colonies of, 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 of in the roots and they communicate to the plant in different ways. And that's so great that this is coming back to us now because that is the only thing that will have a resilient agriculture in the future. So now, uh, as you were stating, uh, the farmers need to go towards that way. But however, most of them stay in the status quo. No? So why is the transition to regenerative agriculture or regenerative farming so slow? So that's the first question that we will have to say. And first of all is, well, we will have to find incentives for the farmers to do that. Well, should we ask farmers to accept lower family incomes to save the world? I mean, farmers might be poor, some of them, but they're not stupid. <laughs> so they need to make more money or at least, I mean, be paid somehow so that they are incentivized to go into regenerative agricultural practices. So this is not only something that, I mean, will diminish the risk in the long term, but needs to also increment the profits of the farmer. Otherwise, you won't have any technologies adopted in regenerative agriculture, and you will still have just conventional agriculture everywhere. So what uh, new policies do you... Uh think that we should implement here in the U.S. or around the world that would incentivize farmers effectively to move to regenerative agriculture? And maybe you could also explain a little bit more as to what re regenerative agriculture is for the listeners. Well, regenerative agriculture goes beyond organic. You know, organic has been, has been that particular seal that everybody knows, and they have that uh, certification program to be organic. And that's just a checkout of list, the things that you cannot use, the things that you can use, okay? But I mean, regenerative agriculture goes beyond that. It says, well, okay, we're thinking about the soil as well. We wanna bring less inputs from the outside. We wanna create our own inputs inside the, own, the, 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 the entire farm. We want to understand how microbes react to the soil, react towards the root system of the plant. And that's the thing that goes beyond organic. Organic is a certification. Regenerative agriculture is not a certification as of today. Some of them are trying to make it a certification. I think uh, we, we should think about uh, not all or nothing approaches like organic agriculture. So we, we should think about uh, that a conventional farmer can adopt regenerative technologies while still being a conventional farmer, but he's adopting technology of regenerative agriculture with time, which is great because that means transition. Otherwise, if you just 
put black or white and say, you're not going to be qualified for the certification of regenerative agriculture, then we're going to see any changes. So we need to allow farmers to adopt technologies of regenerative agriculture. So he can be a conventional farmer, use some nitrogen, whatever, but he needs fertilizers uh, of synthetic, uh, uh, I would say, uh, raw materials. But at the same time, he's adopting those technologies that will lead to a more sustainable farm. And that's what we are fighting for. So is that uh, uh, like a level five regenerative farmer is like a top, uh, you know, uses no outside input and a level one is uh, somebody uses uh, a fair amount of outside input, but has at least made their, you know, first steps into it? Exactly. And, uh, I think that's a great way to look at it because, I mean, otherwise, with all or nothing, we are getting nowhere. See, I mean, we we, we thought that we would get a lot of organic certifications everywhere. I mean, and you're talking about 9% in Europe, 3% in the U.S., 1% in Latin America. This is zero. This is almost nothing. And we thought we were, we were going to be achieving 30% in Europe by now. And we haven't done that. Why? Because our whole process, I mean, has failed to scale. And because we call it a certification of all or nothing. And I don't think regenerative agriculture should go that way. So what can we do to make farmers adopt regenerative agriculture techniques or be more, I mean, into that? And I think, well, definitely we need two things. No, One is the push of the public sector. So we need public sector to adopt, uh, I would say, policies, subsidies, uh, R&D, you know, I mean, because we, you, you need a lot of uh, research and, and, and development because research and development has been doing research in synthetic agriculture, has been doing research in pesticides. That's what everybody has been paid by the larger corporations to do research for, which is fine because that's where the money went for research because, I mean, they had the money to do that. Now we need to start doing research in regenerative agriculture so we can sell, I mean, uh, real stuff and not just, I mean, imaginative actions of microbes in the soil. How many microbes should you apply? When? So all those things, I mean, we have all those land grant universities, we have the National Science Foundation, we have all that infrastructure into place, all the brains are there. We just need to give them money to do more research into regenerative agriculture and regenerative agricultural practices. So that's one thing, we need to have research and we need to have technologies that are proven, science-based. Second thing is I think we should have subsidies for guys that actually adopt that into their own farms. And, uh, and uh, so that's public sector, private sector, and definitely we need to have consumer engagement. We need to find a way that consumers are gonna be the market pool of all those products. They're gonna say no to other products, they're gonna say yes to regenerative agricultural practices and products. So they will have to demand that this comes to their table. And uh, well, one way of also financing all this is with this big decarboxylation, I would say, trend, no? meaning that I mean, you have more regenerative agriculture, you will probably have more carbon sequestration in the soil in agriculture, and that could be great. Well, that's, um, you know, it, it seems as though the that there would have to be some kind of label on the the goods in order for a consumer to have the demand. So, you know, it, I, I understand you had said that the label of organic wasn't sufficient, but it certainly uh, drives some consumer behavior. And as it uh, becomes more effective, hopefully it'll drive more. But 
I, I hear you what you're saying in terms of uh, we need to have some kind of uh, some kind of demand from consumers for these products. And and partly it's that uh, consumers may not know the benefits of the regenerative farming. I mean, that uh, there is a lot of carbon sequestration in the soil if you farm in a regenerative way versus if you're farming in a uh, kind of a, uh, the way current modern farming is done, there's a lot of um, carbon that's emitted through t- uh, tilling the soil and and all the uh, carbon heavy uh, fertilizers that are put on the on the uh, soil to help grow the food, right? Exactly, and uh, what you see there is that I mean, there's a big trend uh, that talks about well. Two trends. One is the greenwashers. No, so everybody claims to be the ones that are doing it good and blah blah. And then the consumer is so confused because he reaches no for for something at at the, at the shelf and he has so many different seals. And in one he sees the frog of rainforest, and in the other one he sees the the fair trade thing. So at the end, I mean, there there won't be enough space in the coffee bags to put more seals on. So I don't think we we need a new seal. I think we need just better communication. And uh, I think greenwashers are just taking advantage of, of the imbalances of that communication in order for them to profit on that. So we need uh, to just, I mean, be more, uh, be more capable of communicating better. So that's, that's also definitely something like, I mean, radio people, TV shows and films and whatever. Well, I, I think uh, one thing that comes to mind as a lawyer, I, I think of uh, lawsuits and that uh, against greenwashers who are who are lying about their products. I mean, because clearly there are some products out there that are saying, hey, we are doing X or Y or Z and they're not actually doing it. Uh, I don't think that's the sole solution, but uh you know, somebody's got to be held accountable. And that's why I feel like uh, you know, companies when they promise that they're going to deliver a, an environmentally friendly product should be actually doing it. Well, I mean, a lot what you see in Greenwash is also that they just mentioned this stuff. We captured 10 million tons of carbon. Is that a lot? They should be they should be doing twice as much, maybe. So they just give you the data, the role in it. They don't give you information. And then you are you're you are amazed by that. So I think greenwashers are very smart by doing their job, and we should be smarter. That's the only thing I'm saying. And that's by educating the public. That's why I guess uh we'll be back in just one minute. But uh, you know, I have a little bit of a disagreement with you, Dr. Tony, on that one, in that I feel like it's so challenging for consumers to get up to speed. That's why the label of organic helps for for instance, uh people who are not sophisticated or, you know, just don't have, uh, you know, 500 hours a, a, a week to, you know, look through all the grocery items to make sure they're organic. They're trusting that the the producers meet the standard. But uh, we'll be right back in just one minute. I'm talking to Dr. Tony Salas, CEO of SharedX, an impact farming company. listening to a climate change this is matt matter and your host i've got dr tony salas on the program uh 
Dr. Tony is the CEO of Shared X, an impact farming company. And uh, just uh, kind of backing up a second, uh, how does agriculture affect climate change? Uh, can you give us a broad description of why or how agriculture affects climate change? Well, I mean, we, we just got the news, no, of the United Nations to yesterday, uh, I think, that I mean, reported that we have reached eight billion people. So that's 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 a lot of mouth to feed, and consequently more challenges to our environment as well. No? Uh, I would say ag currently generates 20, 30 percent of total greenhouse gas emissions, and uh, without action, that that percentage definitely is going to be rising. You know, if you add to probably the logistics of uh, delivery and this and that and and, and, and sending products overseas and so could be more than 30%. And if we have now more people, it's going to be higher. So, I mean, the impact is there. And the only way to, to, to mingle with that is not necessarily to reduce it, but we need we need to sink it. We need, we need to, to 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 suck it. You know what I'm saying? We need to have something that that that, that we can have into control in order to sequester the carbon that we are emitting because some of that, I mean, we cannot stop. So uh, we can think about two things here. People talk about trees, which I think is great. So those are definitely a, a carbon sink. And uh, a lot of people don't talk about soil, which is a much more efficient carbon sink than trees. So if we think about soil, we have all that land to do that. We will thinking about uh, regenerative agriculture being really, really uh, a, a way of sequestering carbon in the soil, which is much more efficient than trees. Well, tell us, how, how is it that uh, soil is more efficient than trees in sequestering carbon? That kind of seems like counterintuitive to those of us who've kind of been brought up to believe that trees are, you know, big and obviously can suck carbon in and and trees, soil trees are great of... trees are great and i'm i'm in favor of, of trees and the thing is now i mean you have to have biodiverse trees you can have all of them and you have i mean fires in the forest and this and that but i mean i think trees are great what they do is they grow very slowly they're bringing carbon from from when they do photosynthesis and they i mean i mean transform the carbon into their wood basically and they of course they sequester also some carbon in the soil but in agriculture, the plants are domesticated to grow very fast. No, mm -hmm. so right. what's happening is photosynthesis, uh, photosynthetic activity is very fast. So they're bringing carbon inside very fast. And what they do is, I mean, sixty percent of the carbon is gone uh, goes to the root system, and it goes to the root system because the carbon feeds the microbes that are in the soil. What they eat, they eat sugars, they eat carbons, and they exchange nutrients in the soil for carbon that the plant is exudating. So uh, what's happening for thousands of millions of years is that, I mean, what is happening is that that carbon is being transferred into the soil in agriculture much more efficient than the tree. So you have, for example, an Amazonian rainforest can capture what probably three, maybe maybe four tons Per hectare per year, if it's efficient, no, and then you have soil that can carbon that that can capture twenty tons. <laughs> so uh, you're talking about it's, it's 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 much more what's happening if the photosynthetic activity is just I mean uh, 
greater. That's what. Did you, did you get that, Matt? I, mean, I want to be sure yeah. that my, my yeah, that's a that's a very stunning statistic that the Amazon rainforest is uh, five times less efficient at capturing carbon than uh, soil uh, growing kind of regular agricultural products. Is that uh, that is a fair statement? Exactly, because, I mean, you grow an almond tree or you grow a wine uh, and grapes or whatever, and then you have to prune it every year and all the carbon goes into the soil and stays there and is chipped down. Some of that, of course, is, is gets, gets evaporated in CO2, but, I mean, a lot of them stays in the soil. And that's what you want. So just by increasing 2%, of all of the soil, I mean, that we have today, I mean, we will solve the whole climate change uh, position. Well, it's not going to happen. But I mean, what I'm saying is that you have to plant in trees and then probably five times the, the, the entire world in order to, 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 to sink all the carbon that we're emitting. So at the end, I would say both are important. So keep planting trees. But I think we should really focus on soil and agriculture and that's what the big thing is and uh, we haven't done that yet so carbon credits everybody talks about carbon credits in the in, in the trees not a lot of people talk about carbon credits in the soil so if we think about that agriculture is an activity that everybody actually it's dependent on uh, i think we should be start thinking how do we monetize that carbon in the soil with farmers that are doing the right thing so how do you do that? What uh, what are the ways in which you can enhance the soil as well as increase the amount of uh, carbon that's sequestered in the soil? What are the practices that, uh, that create that condition? Well, no tilling is one of them that you just mentioned. No? When you open and crack up the soil again, I mean, all that thing goes out again. So the idea is to reduce the tilling methods. Uh, well, definitely perennial crops when you plant whatever, oranges or almonds or olive trees. I mean, they, I wouldn't say they'll stay forever, but they'll stay for 30, 40, 50 years if you don't take them out. So that's being carbon being sequestered in the soil for a long, long time. And then carbon goes down, down, down. And at the end, actually, I mean, it uh, it turns into into oil. <laughs> that That's the idea. <laughs> and uh, so what I'm saying is that, I mean, there are regenerative practices today with microbes in the soil, with biostimulants for the plants that really allow the plants uh, to, to, to fight against stress and to start sequestering more carbon into the soil. And uh, if you apply less synthetic fertilizers, you will make uh, the colonies of the microbes more efficient because they will be producing the nutrients the plant needs and you won't be killing them with pesticides because you apply the pesticide and the pesticide kills, I don't know how much, but a good percentage of the microbes that were living in your soil that were doing good. So you're killing also the good microbes there. And so, I mean, that reduces the amount of carbon that's being sequestered in the soil. So the idea is to go more into regenerative agriculture because that has that particular benefit and that is definitely creating resilience, going and mitigating the effects of climate change and uh, making the farmer at the end more efficient in, a, in, in the long term. So how can we make it so that the farmer gets more money out doing that and doesn't do the other way? Because I mean, the farmer is also thinking on his pockets. <laughs> so we need to find a way with subsidies, we need to find a way with incentives, we need to find a way for consumer engagement, for getting this 
uh, done. And I think carbon credits in the soil is something that big companies can actually help also in the voluntary market to, 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 to address and to pay for those and, and, and to get an incentive done. Well, that's a that's a great idea. Is that uh, actually larger companies that are emitting a lot of carbon could get credits by paying farmers that are using uh, regenerative agriculture techniques and and uh, sequestering lots of carbon by not tilling their soil. Uh, they would get paid through these uh, markets, the free market for carbon credits. And then the government's not even having to pay dollars out of its pocket. Exactly. The government should be involved in the regulatory way, no? Because I mean, you don't want a company to say, well, that's great that now the current credits are available. <laughs> I can just dump everything I want. And I just, I mean, with my left hand, I just buy some current credits from, from some poor farmers and I continue my, uh, the business the way I was doing that before. So you don't want to have that perverse incentive. So the government needs to step in in order to regulate that as well, right? Oh, of course, of course. You know, in a in a, a world that we live in, that's going to actually survive, we've got to be regulating and reducing the amount of pollution that companies are are creating. So that uh, that goes uh, maybe not without saying, because everybody uh, may not be on that same page yet, but uh, I certainly am. Uh, in terms of uh, subsidies, obviously, farmers are already getting lots of subsidies in the U.S. and uh, have been for decades. So uh, even though some conservatives might say, hey, you know, got more subsidies. But I mean, realistically, they're already getting tons of subsidies. So why not subsidize them to do something for good versus the subsidies that they've been getting have been to get grow more corn that is primarily fed to uh, livestock and not to humans. Most of the agricultural production that we have in the U.S., to my understanding, is uh, fed to animals, right? Exactly, and not even in the U.S. So you're actually feeding animals in a different part of the world. So it's not uh, so. So that's important for everybody to know. But what you said is very interesting. No, I mean uh, companies. They can only reduce so much, you know, it comes to a moment where they, they, they can recycle paper, they can do that, but they still have to actually there in the uh, 11th floor, they still have to take the elevator and so on or whatever. So, I mean, there is always something that they need to offset by buying those credits. And I think that's great. That's a way of farmers getting, I mean, paid for what they are doing. So I think subsidies and that is good. And I mean, the time will come Well, you don't need those subsidies and all the grocery stores are going to be built up with those products and the consumer demand is going to pitch for that. It's going to demand that. So it's going to be market full, basically. Well, that's the day we're hoping for. We we need that day to come pretty soon because uh, we're in a bit of a crisis and things uh, don't look too good for us uh, from an environmental front, Tony. So uh, you're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern, your host. I've got Dr. Tony Salas on the program, and we'll be right back in just one minute to talk to Dr. Tony. you're listening to a climate change this is matt mattern your host and i've got dr tony salas on the program uh dr tony just want to ask you uh 
you know, we talked a little bit offline about this and, and the fact that uh, ESG is not good enough uh, because a lot of times companies are going right up to the limit as far as how much they're polluting. And in order to uh, get real reductions in the level of pollutants and greenhouse gases, we need companies to go beyond that and and uh, actually continue to reduce their emissions below what their minimum or requirements are uh, and maybe give them incentives to produce less and less pollution. Uh, how do we do that? Yeah, that would be great. That's definitely a way of, uh, of having a, an aligned, aligned incentive for reducing those emissions. And the, the only way is just, I mean, uh, getting the public sector involved and the, and the private sector involved in order to get those engagements. The thing is, I mean, if we wait the public sector just to do the business, uh, we, we can wait sitting, no? Because I mean, public sectors are really very, very slow in in in, in producing a response to what I mean, what we what we need today. So I think we should force uh, the public private companies that are doing good say, hey, no, I'm doing good. I mean, is there an incentive for me? And that's what you're talking about, Matt. Being able to just, I mean, go, I mean, have the limits, a quarter of the limits that, I mean, the, the, the regulation is saying in order to get extra cash for those companies. That would right. reward reward the good behavior. Now, uh, you've done a lot of work in in developing countries uh, and, and working with farmers there. How are the farmers... Uh, different in those societies and and uh, are what kind of changes can they make to uh, to get carbon credits or to do regenerative agriculture so that they're farming more effectively and and polluting less well uh, we need to understand that 70 percent of the food that we eat is produced by 70 percent of the farmers and 70 percent of the farmers are poor so uh, when you draw a line of poverty, you say, well, what is your incentive? My incentive is, I mean, how do I feed my family? So that particular tree, what, whatever happens to the future with the uh, sustainable environment, I don't necessarily, I mean, concerned with that because I need to feed them today. And poverty then has been uh, together with other uh, factors, of course, one very, very important uh, thing or issue for land degradation and deforestation, especially in the uh, poor countries, like in Africa, Asia, and uh, South America. So uh, not all the poor farmers are like the poor farmers in the US where they get the subsidies or whatever, or they engage with land grant universities. In those particular sites, I mean, they are not. So, I mean, they go into the forest and deeper into the forest and cut down that tree. And they don't have techniques that, I mean, grow sustainable, I mean, in their own land. So, I mean, the land is degraded, so it doesn't produce the yield it used to do five years ago. So they go deeper into the forest and deeper. And that's called shifting agriculture. So shifting agriculture, Culture is really uh, the reason why uh, why uh, land degradation and deforestation in the Amazon basin, in the Congo basin, in Africa is 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 being done today. So we need to do something in order to address poverty if we want to address climate change and environmental changes. You know what I'm saying? 
So poverty is not a separate thing from that. Poverty is totally uh, related to the to the to the to, to the changes that we need to make in 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 environmental concerns. So, so how do we how do we do that? How do we link those two things up? Well, we definitely need to have more efficient farming. So regenerative agricultural practices and this impact farming model that I mentioned at the beginning with shared X, well, they grow in the same way we grow. They have technology, so they raise five times their, their, their productivity, and then they can actually sell it through our platform in the market with consumers that are engaged and concerned about the environment as well and the social uh, impacts that we have. So that is the reason at the end where you have that because, I mean, farmers are damaging sometimes the environment because they are poor. So if you don't solve the poverty, you're not solving the origin of the damage to the environment. Mm -hmm. So that goes back to saying, well, what can we do in order for them to be efficient as farmers? And that is where impact farming comes in. So how do you roll out your programs uh, uh, to more and more farmers? How does SharedX uh, make a, a wider impact or, or, or companies like SharedX? Our idea is to catalyze this impact farming movement. Let's put it that way. You know? I mean, we have uh, increased net incomes up to five times to small coffee growers in Peru and other places. We have increased up to three times carbon sequestration in the soil vis-a-vis -vis conventional, regular, I mean, uh, farming sites in cocoa and in coffee as well. And so we know this works. This is not something that somebody told me or that I read in a paper. This is something I've done. So I can see that and the farmers can see that as well. And they copy us and they sell together with us. And we have a roasting company in Philadelphia, it's called One Village Coffee, and people buy our coffee in 600 stores in the US. And this is not an infomercial, I know, but I mean, we are doing that as of today. This is not a dream I have. So those guys are engaged. Thousands of farmers can do that, but we need to get, get engaged with them and we need to have the ability to bring in those technologies, to bring in that commercial platform for them to actually escape poverty and be then more consequently uh, prepared to fight climate change at the time. Well, uh, kudos to you for the work that you've done thus far in engaging with thousands of farmers and, and helping them increase their income and, and also helping uh, farm more efficiently so that they are sequestering more carbon. I mean, it's a win-win-win situation. Uh, how do you 10x or 100x or 1,000x this effort? Because it's uh, it's great so far. You've built the model. Now uh, now you got to build it out uh, a thousand times bigger. That's all. What well, do you do definitely. Next? I mean, we, we, we will need those communication skills that you have, Matt, I mean, we need to go, I mean, and, and, and convince other farmers to do that, consumers to do that, public sector to do that. And I think that's a, that's, that's a, that's a work that you won't see in one or two, three years. I mean, that's going to take 10 years to do, no? and that's going to take more people, young people that understand this uh, in order to make that change. Because that farmer at the end, I mean, uh, he doesn't want to hurt the environment. He just wants to supply for his own family. No? But if he can get at the end, higher yields and a better price and this and that, 
uh, he's, he doesn't necessarily have to go and damage the forest anymore because he can stay in his farm doing the things that he was doing 10 years ago in a much better way. So is it a matter of uh, your firm and other firms like you just having more capital to go out and have uh, you know, the people to go out in the field and talk to more people, more farmers and, and get them to sign up with the, the program that you're offering? Or what what does it take to expand, uh, you know, your business model so you're affecting more people? Exactly what you just said, Matt, funding, funding. We just need more capital. So, I mean, you, you, you heard about uh, some uh, uh, funds that are created in impact, the ESG funds, and uh, all those uh, greenwashers in the bank saying, yeah, we actually, I mean, have a lot of funding for small farmers for doing environmental good, and they have those KPIs that nobody understands. But at the end, it's more of the same. I can tell you, I mean, 80, 90% of the ESG funds and the things that I read about impact are not true, are just very on the surface, and they're just doing the same thing. They're just using ESG and impact as a, as a, as a nice buzzword, I mean, to get around and to have, I mean, more funding from family offices, putting money into their funds, but they're not making any difference. So at the end, we just need more money that's committed. We need the big guys. We need whatever, the Goldman Sachs. We need the JP Morgans. We need the merchant banks to come in. And uh, I mean, at the end, I mean, that's going to make the difference. When those guys really understand what we are doing, what, I mean, somebody else is doing for the environment and for smallholder farmers and for regenerative agriculture in general. If they're not doing that, I mean, everything else is just BS. Well, uh, definitely the bankers need to get on board and the and the money people need to focus on, on helping solve this problem. I, I did hear from, I think it was the last COP conference that they were talking about how banking had really made a shift and trying to focus more of their efforts on on putting their money where their mouth was in terms of shifting away from uh, the most polluting companies to to less polluting companies. Are you seeing that shift actually occur or is it uh, still very much uh, a small move? I see it small. And you know why? Because bankers don't understand impact very well. And because people understand impact like NGOs don't understand money very well. So this will happen with time when bankers are a little more conscious of what impact really is and what NGO guys really know. I mean, that they have to make a business out of this. Otherwise, I mean, it's not going to be, I mean, enough money for all that. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, it's been a fascinating conversation. Uh, Dr. Tony Salas, CEO and co-founder, co-founder of uh, Shared X. Uh, it's great having you on the program and uh, wish you the best going forward. Everybody check out One Village Coffee. Uh, that sounds like a great uh, brand to support. And uh, tune back in next week. We'll look forward to having you uh, listen in. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you so much for all the young people listening to us.